This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you for tuning in, for listening, for supporting the show, the Patreons. Thank you. It's listener-supported. The people that write in with their stories, I appreciate you. And the wonderful publicists and others who bring us the guests. And also Matthew Wayne Selznick, our technical ace. Thanks, Matt. Today, I have a, a really beautiful guest, and I really love her book, too. I've been picking up, putting it down. It's just so, so powerfully, and it's, it's inspirational. It's a great read. It's called Breath Better Spent, Living Black Girlhood. It's such an honor to welcome my new friend, Dr. Damaris B. Hill, to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm so happy to be here. We're already falling in love here talking, and I thought we better start taping. We're, you're saying too many smart things. <laughs> very true, very true. Doctor, how have you done over the last two years plus with COVID? Has it affected you at all? Did you dodge the bullet? Did you lose anyone? Has it uh, altered the way you're moving through the world? It definitely altered the way I moved through the world. Um, at this point in my life, I'm starting to appreciate the pandemic lifestyle because um, it gives me more time to think and read and work. You know, um, commuting commuting takes up a lot of time. Um, but it's also, you know, it's been a great space of reflection and has allowed me to be more efficient with my time. I try to spend my time in um, a very valuable way all of the time now. And so um, for me, my quality of life has, Im has, has improved. It's more catered um, toward internal desire rather than external habits. But it has been hard watching people suffer. Like, let's be clear. And I haven't had COVID in 2020, 21, or 22, but I got really, really sick on my first book tour. And I'm wondering if that was COVID before we knew it was here in the US. A lot of people had that happen, I know, because it kind of slipped in a few months earlier and there was all these different uh, waves on the East and West Coast. but. It looked like COVID, it sounded like COVID, but they had no name for it. You probably did. Do you think the little virus too was kind of pointing us inward if we wanted to take that and as a cultural, even a, as a humanity to maybe slow down and rethink our place in the cosmos and our relationship both to each other and the earth and the whole ecosystem at large? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, that's, what, that's what I was saying. Like it definitely put me in a more spiritual place. Um, I would say it took out like the type of uh, cloud of light that I like to keep around me and, and help me to formulate a ray of light that I wanna keep around me. So um, I try to be as intentional as possible with my time, my conversation and my friendships and my, all of my relationships what I give my time to, you know, how I'm spending my breath. As you've gotten older, have you had a keener sense of the valuable and fleeting nature of time and life itself? 
Yes, but I, I want to say um, this is not something that's happened as I've gotten older. I come from a family of ministers. I'm one of the few people in my family that do not have an MDiv or a Masters of Divinity. Um, and I don't pastor churches and things like that. Um, I'm taking the scenic route to heaven or wherever we're going to be. Uh, and they all know it. But um, ever since I was um, a child, I, I kind of had the same sense of time. But there's also a way that like, not life gets in the way. But uh, the combination of life and anticipated comfort can cause you to conform to a broad nature or a broad philosophy about time, even though you know it's not true. So being, I, I became a mother very young. I was a single mother. Um, um, being a parent with, with a child that's in school and that may have uh, needs, it, 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 it alters your behavior. How is life for you in Kentucky of all places? Life for me in Kentucky is complex. It is complex. It took me a long time to find some friends, but the friends I have here are great. But um, my therapist, because I do believe in therapy and spirituality, my therapist, when I first uh, started meeting with a therapist about my frustrations um, around living in Kentucky and the cultural climate um, with my employer. She informed me, I think that Kentucky ranking in terms of like impact might be the second most racist state like on some sociological graph. And it's the third most gendered state on another graph. So she was one of the first people that validated what, what I felt and what I thought I was witnessing. So the gender dynamic is, is, is great here that most of the women here socialize in the home. So I noticed that within the first couple of weeks of moving here, I would go to like Panera to write in the morning and I would call my friends and I would say, I'm the only woman in here that's not with my husband. And they'd be like, what? And I was like, I, you know, I've been here from six until 10 a.m. And I have been the only woman in here without my spouse, without a spouse or a man. And they were like, it's not even groups of women. I was like, I'm not even seeing groups of women. So that was one of the first tips off, tip offs that um, that this space was patriarchal. That I didn't see a lot of public space for women. And then the, of course the same was true for race. Like I would attend certain restaurants and the people in the restaurants would know I was not from here because I was eating in that restaurant. Is it oppressive to move through the world and feel all that? Because you're obviously empathetic, you're sensitive, you write beautifully. Is it like a weight one carries? Is it a denser gravity you move through? Yes, but I don't know if I would call it um, necessarily a weight, but it probably is a weight. 
But what I what what it kind of feels like is um, when we were younger, we would have these puzzles that would have like magnetic balls in them, right? And all of the balls would be silver. And then like one of the balls would be red or one of the balls would be blue. And you would try to take a magnet and navigate that ball through the game against the density of the other balls. That's what it feels like. So I don't look at it as a weight, but as a type of negotiation of, um, of a type of social power or capital. It can be like, fiscal power or capital, um, professional power of capital. It's a lot of negotiations um, that are going against the tide and the current of the space. And yesterday was the two year anniversary of the, the murder of Breonna Taylor. Does that weigh on you at all? It weighs on me all of the time. It it weighs on me so much that, that um, I wanted desperately to write a poem about Brianna and Breath Better Spent, but I still haven't figured out how to psychologically and emotionally recover from writing that. It's gonna take me, her, her poem and a poem for Kanika Jenkins, who's, who's out of Chicago, who was out of Chicago. Um, those two women or black girls, um, they're, they're, they're writing their poems was extremely dangerous for me. So I do feel a closeness. I feel a closeness to Brianna because I'm wondering if, if I taught her at the University of Kentucky. I know millions of black, well, not millions, but definitely thousands and know of millions of black girls like her who are trying to navigate a current that is not, um, that is not favoring their movements um, and, and, and succeeding on their own personal and succeeding in, in their world on, on, the, on their terms. And then to have that interrupted by, by the, um, I, I wanna be clear when I say this, by the, by the, by the violent current imperialist white supremacist patriarchal heteronormative culture and and this this you know we we live or we talk about in America that we live in a culture and an environment of democracy but few people talk about how vibrant and active the frontier and pioneersmen perspective of colonialism and expansion are present also in American culture and memory, right? And I think um, Brianna was a victim of those police officers who may have also been weaponizing that mythology. Well, the police forces came from the slave patrols. It's all connected. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Exactly. And when we look at the, the pioneer myth, I don't see it too far divorced from, from the soldiers that, that, that entered other parts of the world as, as we were, you know, negotiating the holy wars 
and expanding um, broken empires in Europe. And we still are, you know, as sad as the Kiev and the Russia thing is, which is totally wrong. How is this different than shock and awe and dropping bombs in the middle of Baghdad, kill millions of civilians and every other imperial quest we've ever done? I totally agree. And how does it change America if some of us begin calling America and discussing America as a post-colonial state rather than an empire? How does it change the way that we negotiate the world and the discussions we have about war? You served in the military too. You were a foot soldier for the empire. What does that feel like? And why did you go in and how did it change you while you were in it? And what does your view look like after you did it? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a, a truth that is also funny first. I almost got kicked out of boot camp twice. So let's start there. <laughs> Two different occasions, they were going to invite me to leave boot camp. So let's start there. But um, so my my grandfather was in the military. My father was is a veteran. Um, my grandfather served in Vietnam in the Korean War. Um, he did a lot with infrared technologies. My dad was a chaplain in Desert Storm and supervised um, some some ministers and some missions there. Um, so it was a part of uh, family tradition in a very, my aunt was in the military, family tradition in a very weird way. Everybody, um, when I said I was going into the military, all of my family kind of like sighed relief. They were like, oh my God, that's going to be so good for you. You know, <laughs> because I had always been um, inquisitive to the point where some people found it rebellious, right? There was, as a child, there was very little you could do to convince me to do something that did not make sense, um, which I'm sure was very annoying to my family. I mean, I'm like the first person um, to have a kid out of wedlock since like emancipation in my family. Like that was a very, very big deal. And so, I went into the military um, for financial reasons. My, my parents got divorced around that time. Um, my mom had the best lawyer in Connecticut and my father had the second best. So that's definitely where all of these went. I'm like, holy, you know what? <laughs> right, you can only imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, right? And you know, this is like, you know, the the, the 90s in, in Southern Connecticut. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm sure it got nasty a lot of times. And the way, my, the way that I lived my life was altered by not only the divorce, but um, the financial commitments that accompanied the divorce, right? And so um, part, and I, I was already a mother, I was already um, in college. Um, and so the National Guard, I was in ROTC, even though I was very bad at it. I would never carry my own bag. I would never pitch my own tent. I would get the guys in the unit to do it for me or whatever. Everybody knew, they just let me stay. I don't know why. But then um, my friend who was in the military, she was working for the National Guard. She called me and she said, they have something for you. And I was like, what you mean? She was like, it's called the air guard. 
there is no, <laughs> she was like, there's no joint PT and um, there is no field time. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I started talking to them and, um, you know, after I took the little test or whatever, they were offering me cash to learn the skills that I learned. And then at that time, in the state of Maryland, and this was the greatest benefit for me, that the National Guard would pay back half your tuition in cash, regardless of how it was paid for. That was their like benefit in the state of Maryland. And so what it allowed me to do, because I was paying about $35,000 a year to go to school, is that um, that, that, that $35,000 $35, a year was supplemented, right? I can earn a very healthy uh, amount of money working one weekend a month. And then I was able to have just like a work study job and also like, um, take care of my son, you know, part-time daycare for my son while I was taking classes and doing the work study job. And it, it supplemented my income and allowed me to graduate, you know? And isn't the college tuition thing a con? No offense, I know you're a professor, but shouldn't we make it super easy and affordable and free even? If we, we want to have an educated population so we don't end up extinct. Right, let's be clear. I believe in universal healthcare. I believe in taking care of the people that are already here. And I would love if we had like some universal educational plan, right? Because like, I know I'm a college professor, but it's not like I'm seeing that money anyway, right? I'm still an employee. So for every person, like let's say I have a class of 40 people, maybe the tuition of two of those people are paying my salary. You know, so there, there's inequity in any industry in a capitalist society. There's inequity, right? And so, um, but I'm always people first. I'm just choosing people first. Like I made that commitment a long time ago. It is contrary to everything that I learned in the military. And it's contrary to the way they teach you to navigate the world in the United States if you're gonna be successful. They tell you to divorce yourself from your human. If you are somebody that's that's invested in people, your pay is significantly low, right? And so, and that's one of the arguments why doctors keep saying they don't want to go to a universal healthcare system because they're going to make so such less money. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the case. And are you talking about less money? proportionately to others? Like, do you think you will not, no longer be um, on the higher end of a middle class or a lower end of wealthy? Like exactly what are you pointing to, right? As this measurement of wealth, you probably won't be paying uh, insurance, malpractice insurance. So that could save you thousands of dollars a month, right? Um, so like, I just think we don't give it time to explore what this really means. Well, it looks like a sociopathic system and to thrive in it, you have to become a sociopath. In some ways you do, or you have to, um, 
You just, you have to negotiate it. And to negotiate it, you have to have time to understand it. And so that is one of the perversities of poverty. I have been poor before, but one of the perversities of poverty is um, you don't have access to information and you may not have enough access to your own time to have an imagination or space to desire what you want. We criminalize it too and punish people. Yes, yes, yes. Reminds me of Lord of the Flies, but worse. And I mean, I think it's the same thing. I want to say one more thing because this is like one of one of the things I think about a lot. It, it's closely related, I think, too, to, to mass incarceration. Like we criminalize mental illness of the poor and put them in the prison industrial complex, but the mental illnesses of the middle class and the wealthy become points of negotiation. And then you either go to prison or you go to the military to fight oil wars or whatever. They make it very hard to get out, can't afford college. Yeah, I don't even think they, I don't think they even offer people military anymore. Yeah, I think people, I think, I think our policies that exist right now, I'm not going to put it on the policymakers because hopefully those people are shifting, but the policies that are in place right now um, very much privilege uh, the prison industrial complex, whether it's privatized or government run in either which way there's already enough money in that system that the prisoners should not be should not be forced to work for free my tax dollars your tax dollars and everybody's tax dollars should already be enough do you feel the white patriarchy will ever secede from power and move towards a greater equality i i'm i'm very unsure of that uh the optimist in me wants to believe that 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 the spirit of humanity will prevail. But I also recognize that greed is like black mold and fungus. Greed can easily take over the humanness. So I'm, I'm unsure, I'm unsure. That it's not, I don't think they're ever gonna necessarily secede, but I am wondering if, if they ask themselves how much they're willing to pay. I think right now in this current political and cultural climate, some of our leaders are asking us to roast our grandchildren and serve them at their tables. Who among you is willing to do that? I'm not. Not even if someone tells me good job, no matter what they're paying me. I've decided that I'm not gonna serve my grandchildren's inheritance in terms of ecology uh, and environment, in terms of finances, I'm not giving it up. But, but who is also gonna make that decision? Even in the face of, of greed and perverse power. Beautifully said, beautifully said. Do you think we're improving or are we just moving the furniture around the room every few years, every few decades? We take a step here, then we go backwards, we go sideways this way. I mean, it's better. You and I could go to dinner and not be shot, but I, not in all the places in the United States. I think it's a lot of that. Right. It is better, right? And in some places, we 
In some states, we can drink the water, right? In some states. Sometimes I want to believe it's propaganda and rhetoric. Other times, or maybe it's all of these things, right? Um, other times I want to believe that it's, it's some um, warped type of loyalty that might be akin to what we call like, or uh, an expanded version of what we call like codependent relationships or something like that. And then it could also be like ambition, right? Like if, if this one person who is a patriarch um, and operates this way has all of these benefits, then I want those benefits too. And then if we're in a system that believes in hierarchies, even people that don't benefit as much want to be a part of that because we think it elevates our social status in some type of way, the proximity of that. And I just think we have to be, be careful with those negotiations. You know, there's, there's a joke that I once heard uh, about feminism, right? Like you were in on the heist, but you don't like your, your cut. Talking about white feminists, right? And so like, we, we have to look at all of that. And like, I have to question myself all of the time. There are so many privileges that I have access to because I served in the United States military. There's the understanding of power, power negotiations, sacrifice and leadership that, is, that, that I've been afforded because I've spent time in the military. So like the very broad values of the military, I don't buy into, but they have educated me and they have made me, they have made me a better intellectual and a better critique or critic of the social condition. Do you ever feel your ancestors moving through you when you do your work and move through the world? Always, oh, all, uh, all, always. Like, I don't know if feel is, is, well, yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the right word. I mean, I, I try, I try really hard to, to think about, maybe this is like a cheat, right? Like I want the cliff notes from my ancestors. Like when, when the social political climate began to change, I knew some things, my behavior had to adapt if I was still invested in, in my own type of liberation and personal freedom, right? But I also knew that I did not have the playbook. And so I had to get the playbook and that playbook kind of turned into my, my first collection of poetry, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, right? It is about black women in incarceration, but it's also looking at the ways that um, the United States as a nation state criminalizes resistance and, and um, movements towards equity, particularly when black women are leading them. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm an artist and a human being. Everything that I touch and that touches me changes me. But I hope um, the desires of my ancestors and the knowledge of my ancestors are close enough to me that I can access them and that my children and my friends can have access to them and my community can have access to them as we continue to navigate against this current. And it is hard to walk through the world as a sovereign human being, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's the hardest thing. That's one of the hardest things to question every day, how am I gonna hold on to my humanity today? And then another really hard question is um, re that's related to power is that you, you can't have power until you decide what you want. But in a capitalist economy, sometimes we stay so busy that we, we can't even figure out what we desire because it's a lot of propaganda. I mean, that's, that's what the whole marketing industry is about, right? Convincing you what you want. I feel bombarded by advertising everywhere and I don't even own the TV, but you can't even look at anything without somebody pitching you something constantly everywhere. How is that okay? Back off. It's not okay. And even those of us that don't want to indulge in it, it do. So like, it's so funny. One of my friends said to me last week, she was like, you are so great on social media. And I was like quiet in the time because we were like in a group. And then later I emailed the group. I was like, these are the apps that I use to run my social media. I don't even want to be on social media. <laughs> I, I, I would rather enjoy my friends personally, right? But um, if I want a younger demographic of readers, this is the, the social media space which is very akin to a type of individualized marketing, it's their space of awareness. So I have to have a presence there, but I do use an app and I program the app for four hours on Sunday with lots of content, sometimes anywhere from 120 to 150 pieces of content. And then I just let it roll. <laughs> I check in like maybe once a day, but nah, I let it go. I didn't know you could do that. I just feel like the light came through the clouds, like in a movie. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. One of my friends, like, it's like his academic field of study. And um, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sick of this social media. Like, what do I do? He's like, get an app. I was like, you can get an app for that? He was like, yeah. So I've just been telling all my friends, get an app. Doctor, how do you keep the faith in this world when we're bombarded by so many things that uh, kind of hurt and harm our spirit? I start with desire. Um, this book, Breath Better Spent, Living Black Girlhood, and part of the dedication, like it's to, to my nieces, well, it's for everybody. But when I write it, I specifically think about my nieces and my granddaughters who are not yet conceived, but already loved, already loved. And I desire that this world and this space is better for them. And that is part of the motivation to uh, continue to try to cultivate a world that's different. Do you want to read something? Do you feel inspired? 
Sure. Is there anything you want to hear? Just your voice. <laughs> okay. I'll 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 read Beloved Weirdo. It's something that I read um, from time to time, but I think it really kind of talks about some of the things that are important in the book. So Beloved Weirdo, you are not digging this book about a slave girl and her incidents. The pages read about her early knowing of all things. Meanwhile, you know you ain't got a stitch of sense. If you did, you would have put that book down and hit that boy asking you if your name is beloved and if you are gonna be like Setha and kill the newborn baby he wants to put in you. Is he the weirdo watching in on you and your bestie leaving the woman's clinic? You wish you would have gone wild as the wind on him for prying. Instead, you go deaf and dumb thinking on it. Your mind wanders into a book you think on asking Ms. Harriet Jacobs, how does a girl learn to be a slave? Does a snake bite you and leak venom until you fall crippled and spasm, zombie you into a slave? If no, then you gotta swallow a butterfly and let it flutter in your throat. Smother your words until you become a slave. Do you let the butterfly kick you way up into your tonsils? This might make your eyes rummage the floor for cracks and force you to be humble. Can a slave be made from a butterfly that avoids windows, avoids light? Does that butterfly become a bat under a girl's collar? Or do you crawl under the hoof of a horse named Andrew Jackson to become a slave? The horse galloping and neighing at your earlobes, dirt in with the blood. To be a slave, would you have to take your ribs and fashion Andrew Jackson's hooves with ivory shoes? Would the overseers use your teeth to tether, hold Andrew Jackson's shoes in like nails? In the cradle of your black, ringing neck? Do you offer the nag a pedestal and curtsy at the mare's master? Just curious, not dying to know. So that poem, of course, was inspired by a bunch of books. One of the books was um, Harriet Jacobs' Incidents of a Slave Girl, where she says she didn't know she was a slave until she was six. And that really jarred me and um, made me fall off the rails with curiosity. At six years old, most people don't even know how to name their body parts. At six years old, you may not know your mother's first name. At six years old, you may not even know how to hold a fork correctly. Imagine the intellectual dexterity and the amount, the amount of violence that Harriet Jacobs had to witness by six years old to figure out that she was contractually property of another person. Oh, just so touching. What is it that inspires you and drives you to teach? Why do you 
want to teach? What is, what is it in you that wants to share and touch young people? Well, this is one job that allows me to, to read books and to share them with others. So that is very pleasurable. But initially, um, before I was brave enough to become a writer, I was very interested in cognitive theory and the way that the brain learns and processes information. And that interest um, landed me a position um, when I was actually an undergraduate um, supervising and training reading teachers, which um, also afforded me to use that type of information in my, my first bit of professional employment as a reading, reading teacher in Baltimore City Public Schools. Um, and then I decided to, um, to not formally abandon my curiosity about um, learning practices, but I realized that that curiosity about the way the brain processes information was just so closely related to my love of words that um, in, in, in my graduate program, uh, I, I was forced to choose between the two. And that decision was largely influenced um, by me winning the Hurston Wright Award for college writers that year. So I was telling everyone that I was gonna become this type of brain scientist but I was continuing to take creative writing classes and in winning that award uh, gave me the courage to think that, that I could actually become a writer. You know, it's the most, writing is the most insecure part of my life. The blank page is terrifying. And I love that you said brave enough to be a writer. It's tough to claim it too. I've written six books. And I still don't always say I'm a writer. Someone asked me yesterday what I do. And I told him about the podcast, but saying I am a writer is such a bold statement. It is, it is, it is. And if you, and if you look at the revenue, it, it, it might be bolder. Right? <laughs> like, you know, my, I, my parents would tell me that artists die poor when I was younger. They would always say that to me, artists die poor. That's actually how I became a writer. I, I start because writing was the art that I could hide very easily. What are you working on now? Is there another book or is that too bold an ask? No, um, there is. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about two projects very deeply right now. One, I'm, I'm going to write an essay about uh, bell hooks. Um, and the essay is also about Kentucky. It's not biographical, but it's just kind of a personal essay thinking about her and her relationship to Kentucky through my eyes though. I'm not trying to, um, you know, project her thoughts or anything like that. That's really important to me right now. And the, um, the next book is going to be about, um, the intersections of the prison industrial complex and 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 girls of all races, um, and kind of looking at that journey um, from bondage to freedom or bondage to a different type of bondage. It's something I've been working on for a while. 
it's the story that I, how, how I've been drafting it is historicized. And I'm thinking a lot about, should I contemporize it? Um, and what happens when I, when I do that? I'm unsure right now, but that's definitely what I wanna write about next because I am plagued about the perversity of putting children in prison. What advice other than don't do it? <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Would you give to young writers who are aspiring and might be listening? Oh, my advice is always to keep writing. Always write. Uh, change your center of reward. You have to write something that is rewarding to you because there's a lot of rejection in, in this career field and there's not a lot of financial rewards. You have to be in it for you. I was scared to death of this book, Breath Better Spent. I didn't know how it was gonna be received. And then one of my other writer friends, she told me when she used to ask me, you know, like how, how's your day going? I used to tell her this book is gonna kill me. And I had forgotten, I used to tell her that all the time. I used to be like, oh, this book is gonna kill me. But um, what was happening when I was writing the book is that I, I was growing. I was developing, I was coming in contact with the ways that I remembered things and interrogating the memory of those events and interrogating the conditions that, um, that germinated those events from, from an adult or womanhood perspective. And then also using this kind of black girl intellect and strategy and reasoning. The book matured me in a lot of ways. I was scared of the book sometimes, but in the end, I, I was happy with the book. But I'm also over-conceptual with, with, with a lot of things that I do. I, I see it in my head as a finished product and then I begin to dissect and make it. Well, I know I have to let you go, but could do you read one more beautiful passage for the worldwide audience? And as we talked about before, I can't wait to have you already back on again. I just feel like I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> You're great. Thanks. I'll come back anytime. I will come back anytime, Paul. Um, I just want to say for your listeners, for those of you that don't have the book yet, the book, the book catches light and it sparkles. You may enjoy that. Um, I am gonna leave, uh, okay, let me see, I'm gonna ask you. Uh, I'm gonna leave us, I think I'm gonna leave us with a Whitney Houston poem. So Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin um, are, are, are kind of prominent in the book. I grew up or I came of age outside of the New York metropolitan area in New Jersey. So in a lot of ways, this book has a, a Jersey girl content. Sage poets and pop stars. Miss Brooks keeps an eye on you in the Mecca. Her ear to the streets, eyebrow perched like a limb. If you ask a question, you must keep going. You can't stop there. World will wave, will be facetious. 
and you fly off the handle, giggle and grab dictionaries, point straight through the Fs, thump the definition when you eye it, curious through to the poor. You leave the library with questions in your Walkman. How will I know? Finger fluffing your bangs, making them wiggy. You and Whitney wondering what is really love. You kissed a couple of boys and their cousins, left fruity sweet lips on the necks of them, in choir closets, on baseball fields, and in staircases. You write love letters religiously to other girls' boyfriends. They are recipes, love spells. You say little, three-way calling is mischief. The person on the other end, the gin. Whitney has the voice of rainbows and hums glitter. How could she feel weak? She tells you falling in love is bittersweet, crab apples, ripe, foul, and reckless in the arches of your feet. Cicadas sing long distance through phone lines. The lightning bugs are out of the jar, flying about the kitchen. Love comes in sweet tarts, batty boys finger popping and passion's doors, affections in Easter colors. They love like mood lipstick. Laughter is the lust you share. They switch, hold hands with bookworms, blow kisses through beauty shop windows, skip when they see mirrors and other mysteries. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.